0: Before we begin, I wanted to thank everyone for contributing to The Ransom and announce that we have made our goal, yeah! This February, we'll be releasing From Beyond with Bruce Green and The Picture in the House with Andrew Lehman. Isn't that great, Chad? You bet! I think those will be some sententious performances. Anyway, I want folks to know that we're putting together our next music compilation, Music of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast Volume 2. This will have all new music from the show and maybe some remixes of the early stuff. I just made that up. I have no idea if there's going to be any new remixes or anything like that, so i have to wait and see. On with the show.
1: HPpodcraft.com Gorgons and Hydras and Chimeras, dire stories of Solano and the Harpies, may reproduce themselves in the brain of superstition, but they were there before. They are transcripts, types... The archetypes are in us and eternal how else should the recital of that which we know in a waking sense to be false come to affect us at all is it that we naturally conceive terror from such objects considered in their capacity of being able to inflict upon us bodily injury or least of all these terrors are of older standing they date beyond body or without the body they would have been the same that the kind of fear here treated is purely spiritual, that it is strong in proportion as it is objectless on earth, that it predominates in the period of our sinless infancy, our difficulties the solution of which might afford some probable insight into our anti-mundane condition, and a peep at least into the shadow land of pre-existence. Charles Lamb, Witches and Other Night Fears.
2: Hello, I am Chad Pfeiffer.
0: Yeah, and I'm Chris Lackey, and you're listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
2: You're at hppodcraft.com. Happy New Year!
0: Happy New Year to you. It's wonderful to be uh, to be back. But I'm I'm not alone, Chad.
3: Are you serious? Who's with you?
0: I am with none other than Robert M. Price.
3: I thought it was Wilbur Whateley. uh, There must be a (laughs) mix-up. No!
2: (laughs) You do have a deep voice. (laughs) We're talking today about one of Lovecraft's most famous tales. We do talk about H.P. Lovecraft here, and the tale is The Dunwich Horror. Now, uh, Robert is a leading Lovecraftian scholar, has been for some time. Uh, I believe you edited a journal called Crypt of Cthulhu, is that right?
3: Yeah, through 107 issues. Wow.
2: And uh, you've been an essayist for a number of anthologies, and... Uh, Robert is also Professor of Theology and Scriptural Studies at Coleman Theological Seminary and Professor of Biblical Criticism at the Center for Inquiry Institute. And uh, he's a co-host on this excellent podcast, Point of Inquiry, which everybody should check out, as well as his own show, The Bible Geek. We'll, of course, put up links to those shows on our page. Do you have any particular books on the market to call out
3: or anything like that? A couple of them appeared from Chaosium, a new anthology, The Yith Cycle, and uh, then a new version of the... um... Uh, Mysteries of the Worm, the Robert Block Mythos collection. And any time now, they're supposed to be putting out the yog sathoth and the Yig cycles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, geez, uh, Mythos Books is supposed to be putting out the uh, Exum cycle, which is tales revolving around the rats and the walls. Mm-hmm. So oh, wow. I'm looking forward to those coming out eventually.
0: Now, I have a question for you, which I don't quite understand, is how you, uh, as a theologian, got so heavily into Lovecraft.
3: I guess I got into HPL when I was in something like the seventh grade, and it hadn't been but a couple of years since I had become a teenage fundamentalist. I always thought that'd be a great movie title. I was a teenage <laughs> fundamentalist. I um, I didn't really find uh, any real conflict, uh, nor do I uh, now, though I have to admit I'm not uh, a conventional believer in any sense. I'm, I, I'm what I call a Christian atheist. Uh, I love uh, the Episcopal Church and the ritual and the symbolism and all that stuff, but I, I have no real religious beliefs any longer. Mm-hmm. I study them, but don't preach or anything. Right. So uh, it's just one more system of mythology clothed in effective literature and very evocative. I mean, both the Bible and the, the, the Lovecraft and other Things I'm interested in, like Howard and comic books and so on. Right. They're all sort of mind expanding, uh, imagination feeding texts, and I love them all. Me too. <laughs> me too. Well, hey,
2: what can you guys tell me about that epigraph uh, that we just heard? By the way, our, our reader today is once again the wonderful Andrew Lehman yeah. who did that for us. And that was a, it was a Charles Lamb quote. What do we know
3: about him? What, what did that mean? The statement is very interesting, this idea of preexistence of souls and what's interesting about it. Is that it envisions some kind of hellish pre-existence where usually people think of it as as heavenly or or even on the earth of its reincarnation. But uh, the idea that that's where we learn to fear, what we fear, but can no longer put a finger on it, that that's a pretty spooky notion.
0: But there's gotcha. also, in the passage, there's some kind of missing ellipses that Lovecraft doesn't in- include in this. You know, when it's... Uh, oh, yeah, he
3: cut some stuff out. I think the line he cut out was, of course, this is all bullshit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's correct. That is exactly what was uh, cut out there. I'm looking at the...
2: Uh... That's Charles Lamb actually has another famous epigraph, which was for To Kill a Mockingbird. It says, lawyers, I suppose, were children once. That's how that opens. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you want a successful piece of writing, I guess, go find a Charles Lamb quote. Stick it in there. It'll be the <laughs> next Dunwich Horror next uh, to a Mockingbird. It'd
3: be interesting if they both came from the same essay. <laughs> yeah, it really would. We don't have Bob for the whole run of the
0: story.
2: Yeah, because this is a long story, and uh, it'll probably have to break it up into a few parts. With that said, why don't we just dive into it?
1: When a traveler in north-central Massachusetts takes the wrong fork at the junction of the Aylesbury Pike just beyond Dean's Corners he comes upon a lonely and curious country. The ground gets higher, and the briar-bordered stone walls press closer and closer against the ruts of the dusty, curving road. The trees of the frequent forest belt seem too large, and the wild weeds, brambles, and grasses attain a luxuriance not often found in settled regions. At the same time, the planted fields appear singularly few and barren, while the sparsely scattered houses wear a surprisingly uniform aspect of age, squalor, and dilapidation. Without knowing why, one hesitates to ask directions from the gnarled, solitary figures spied now and then on crumbling doorsteps or on the sloping, rock-strewn meadows. Those figures are so silent and furtive that one feels somehow confronted by forbidden things with which it would be better to have nothing to do. When a rise in the road brings the mountains in view above the deep woods, the feeling of strange uneasiness is increased. The summits are too rounded and symmetrical to give a sense of comfort and naturalness, and sometimes the sky silhouettes with especial clearness the queer circles of tall stone pillars with which most of them are crowned. Across a covered bridge, one sees a small village huddled between the stream and the vertical slope of round mountains. And wonders at the cluster of rotting gambrel roofs bespeaking an earlier architectural period than that of the neighboring region it is not reassuring to see on a closer glance that most of the houses are deserted and falling to ruin and that the broken steepled church now harbors the one slovenly mercantile establishment of the hamlet one dreads to trust the tenebrous tunnel of the bridge yet there is no way to avoid it once across It is hard to prevent the impression of a faint, malign odor about the village street as of the massed mold and decay of centuries. It is always a relief to get clear of the place and to follow the narrow road around the base of the hills and across the level country beyond till it rejoins the Aylesbury Pike. Afterward, one sometimes learns that one has been through
2: Dunwich. And those, are, uh, those are the opening paragraphs, or two selections from the first few paragraphs of the Dunwich Horror. Lovecraft doing an excellent job of creating a, a setting.
0: Yeah, now, the, well, let's talk about Dunwich a bit. Now, there's, there is a bit of, of controversy of how it's pronounced.
2: Right, uh, right, we talked about that previously. Yeah, we
0: did. Uh, now, people from England, there is actually, or was a Dunwich in England, and it was pronounced Dunwich. And there are places in Massachusetts which are... If there's a Greenwich, which is pronounced Greenwich and Ipswich. Right.
2: Oh, it's pronounced... In Massachusetts, it's Greenwich? Yeah, yeah. They don't say it's Greenwich? It's actually
0: Greenwich. It's not Greenwich. Hmm. So, in Massachusetts, it seems to be with a, with a W in there. But even if you go over to Rhode Island, they say itch. They don't say Witch. So, and Lovecraft has never said which way it was supposed
3: to be pronounced. Well, if it's in Massachusetts, uh, I would go with a witch. Exactly. Plus, if, if you say dunnage, people are going to think, what a jerk. You, you got to be that right. <laughs> You're right. Yes.
2: Take that, Chris.
0: I know. Because I, I was the guy that said Dunwich last week. And I was like, oh, Chad, it's Dunwich, It's Dunwich. But I did a little research and found out uh, that it's, it's nobody knows. Also, the thing about the, the Dunwich in England was mm. that it, it, it's gone. it gone. It sort of got eaten up by the sea. And it seems a lot more similar to actually Innsmouth, which is uh, another town that Lovecraft's going to talk about. There's a lot more parallels between uh, Innsmouth and...
2: And the Dunwich there.
0: Yeah, the Dunwich that was in England. Also, Arthur Mackin mentioned the English Dunwich in one of his stories, uh, The Terror. Oh, really? Yeah, we know that Arthur Macken uh, is a big influence on this particular story.
3: Yeah, Yeah, a real big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. In fact, he even later on, he cites the great god Pan in the story.
2: But uh, Bob, I think you've written actually that this is more or less a pastiche of a lot of Macken's stories, specifically the great god Pan. Yeah,
3: if it weren't so well done, people would be jeering at it as they do Derleth's The Shuttered Room, saying, oh, come on, this is just a a rip-off of Shadow over Innsmouth and Dunwich Har. Well, it sort of is, but it's got a certain charm of its own. But in this Mm -hmm. case, uh, you really have to do a double take to realize the amazing degree to which the this is based on mac and he really has made it his own but it is an added dimension to realize where it comes from especially helen vaughn and the the spawn of pan
0: yeah because in the story the great god pan pan you know the god or the interdimensional being or whatever you want to call it mates with a woman and the story is about the offspring uh, who is supernatural and causes all these problems. It's a really cool story. If you haven't, you know, the audience hasn't read The Great God Pan, check it out. It's It's really neat. It's really creepy. Yeah, it's
2: good stuff. Now, after those first few paragraphs, Lovecraft goes on to say that even though on the surface, the scenery is beautiful around Dunwich, People generally avoid it. And they did two centuries ago during the Witch Panic, but now they do it as a result of something that happened as recently as 1928, which is referred to as the Dunwich Horror. Now, the story was written in 1928, I believe. Yeah. And uh, was it published soon It after, was published.
0: Or? It was published in Weird Tales, and this is, at, at the at this point, it was the biggest payment that Lovecraft ever got for a story, which is $240, which is a heck of a lot. I mean, if we were talking about, remember, uh, he only got paid $16 for... For um, uh, the last test? Yeah, the last test.
2: The people who live in Dunwich, because of their isolation from the rest of the world, and this is a pretty common theme about these backwoods New England places, they've sort of succumbed to inbreeding and decadence. The old families of the Waitleys and the Bishops... These are the, the sort of old families there. They'll still send some of their kids off to Harvard and Miskatonic University, but those kids, once they get away to college, they don't want to come back to no. Dunwich. <laughs> they
0: don't want any part of it.
2: You know, and most people, when they go to college, they have to sort of adjust to the wider world, but imagine if you were from Dunwich, you know? <laughs>
3: mm.
2: Wait, you're telling me you date outside of your family? College is crazy.
3: <laughs> One of those things you're wearing on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, Now,
2: something's wrong with Dunwich, and and it says maybe it's from the Indians who were there before and called out things from the hills and caused these rumblings in the earth. In 1747, the Reverend Abijah
3: Hoadley? Is it Abijah? I think it's Abijah. 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 Uh,
2: He'd come to Dunwich Village Congregational Church and gave a whole sermon on this where he said he'd been hearing demons speaking in the hills behind his house, a rattling and rolling, a groaning, screeching and hissing, and and then he... Disappeared shortly after giving the sermon. Yeah, <laughs> um, is this fella based on anybody? Was he a real guy? No, he's he's,
0: not... a, he's totally fictional.
2: Well, what what he recorded isn't uncommon around Dunwich. People talk about airy things passing by them from the ravines, strange odors from those uh, stone pillars on the top of the mountains, and and they sort of have a blasted heath there as well, uh, or a blasted hillside. Yeah,
0: it's very similar. It Was making me think of call it a Devil's Hop Yard, and uh, a hop yard is where they would grow hop.
2: The Devil's Hop Yard is a great. That's a band name if I've ever heard one. Uh, <laughs> now that, that's a state park up in Connecticut or something
3: uh, this uh, thing with the, the rushing airy presences the stench and all that that you're supposed to coordinate with the Necronomicon quote late, uh, later on as a foulness sh- shall ye know them and all that uh, that's uh, the old ones that this guy is aware of though he doesn't know to call them that mm-hmm. and they're in the places where the rights have been howled in their season and so on it's, it's only uh Armitage eventually will make the connection. Yeah,
2: yeah, and now the, and there's also this local legend about uh, World. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's uh, right. a real legend
0: too of, yeah. of the area. Lovecraft back in 28, he went to go visit the area uh, in, in the summer of 28, and he was staying with a friend or visiting a friend. I don't know if he actually stayed with her, uh, Edith Miniter, and that was in Wilbraham.
2: When you say the area, you mean this was a he actually based this off an area. He did. He,
0: well, he based it off uh, this area in South Central Massachusetts, even though he said it's in Northern Massachusetts. And it was his stay of in this area. And this is a letter to I think it was his aunt Lillian. Uh, he says about this area, the scenery is lovely in the extreme, with just the right balance of hill and plain. It is not so vivid as Vermont, but much richer and statelier, with larger trees and more luxuriant vegetation generally. The houses are old, but not notable. The population is quite sharply divided. The good families are maintaining their old standards, whilst the common folk are going downhill. And on this trip, that's where he heard the story of, of uh, the whippoorwills.
3: What is that story, Bob? Do you know? Yeah, that when somebody dies, the the whippoorwills wait around to uh, catch his soul and uh, devour it somehow. And that they're psychopomps, that they carry it off to the next world or somewhere. And uh, there's a lot of old legends all over the world that... Uh, that's departing souls turn into birds or, or sound like them or one thing or another. But this is just the straight story he was told when he was there. Psychopomps.
0: Well, psychopomp is a Greek is a Greek word. It means a conductor of souls.
3: Mm. Yeah. Hermes was supposed to be that kind of right. like the yeah. grim reaper or, or Charon on the river Styx. That's
0: right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And uh, just for for our listeners, if you if you haven't heard what a whippoorwill sounds like. Check this out.
2: Wow, I I feel a little lighter. I hope it didn't take my soul. <laughs> it's it's kind of nice, actually. Uh, well, we end this first chapter of the story by saying that Dunwich is it says, ridiculously old, which I think is a great description. <laughs> the most modern piece of architecture there is from 1806, which, you know... That is quite a while ago. Uh, The stone circles on the hills are the oldest, said to be from the Indians, but deposits of skulls and bones that have been found there, some ethnologists believe that the remains may be Caucasian. Dun-dun-dun. So I don't know. A bunch of white folks have been killed up there. So that's the end of that first chapter. We get into the second chapter where we have a very significant incident that sort of sparks the whole story.
1: It was in the township of Dunwich in a large and partly inhabited farmhouse set against a hillside four miles from the village and a mile and a half from any other dwelling that Wilbur Whateley was born at 5 a.m. on Sunday the 2nd of February, 1913. This date was recalled because it was Candlemas, which people in Dunwich curiously observe under another name, and because the noises in the hills had sounded and all the dogs of the countryside had barked persistently throughout the night before. Less worthy of notice was the fact that the mother was one of the decadent Waitleys, a somewhat deformed unattractive albino woman of 35, living with an aged and half-insane father about whom the most frightful tales of wizardry had been whispered in his youth. Lavinia Whateley had no known husband, but according to the custom of the region made no attempt to disavow the child, concerning the other side of whose ancestry the country folk might, and did, speculate as widely as they chose. On the contrary, she seemed strangely proud of the dark, goatish-looking infant who formed such a contrast to her own sickly and pink-eyed albinism and was heard to mutter many curious prophecies about its unusual powers and tremendous future.
3: (laughs) We're getting rolling here with a virgin birth, right? Yeah, uh, Stan Sargent, uh, who wrote an interesting uh, sequel to the Dunwich Horror, kind of unraveling it in, uh, and challenging the, the surface perspective of it, called the, what did I just say this? I forget now, uh, Black Brad of Dunwich. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting, and he points out the obvious that uh, she must have been impregnated uh, by her father and uh, that, that he was the vessel somehow for, for this. Uh, which oh, makes my. the whole thing even more disgusting, yeah. uh, and that's that's why uh, the uh, the the invisible twin later on has this uh, half face that looks like w- old wizard Waitley, uh right, because yeah. it's actually his uh, <clears throat> bastard spawn.
0: Oh, uh. <laughs> well, I didn't make that connection when I read it. I just assumed that some slimy monster came down and she yeah got with that. But
2: no, it makes sense though. Yeah, absolutely. Mm.
3: Mm nauseating stuff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, I you know, I had all kinds of theories about uh the relationship of Jesus Christ to Joseph Kerwin when we did the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but those all yeah. hit the cutting room floor. And we never got him into the show, but is, is this story related to that at all, do you think? I mean, is he playing on some Christian
3: legendary or or would he just oh, yeah, say no? Yeah. Especially when he has uh, uh, the invisible uh, twin up there on the Sentinel Hill, which is like uh, Golgotha, and he's uh, croaking out uh, Father. It's it's like Jesus on the cross. Yeah. And, uh, and Don Burleson and, and others have pointed this out. And he says that really there's even the resurrection idea because it's it's obvious that that uh, Wilbur and the twin share an actantial role, as critics call it. They're, they're different characters, obviously, but they're the same narrative function personified. It's almost as if they are the same character. And uh, so you have Wilbur. Get uh, mauled by the uh, the German Shepherd, and he he dissolves, and uh, then suddenly uh, the uh, the twin bursts out of the house as if it was uh, the the empty tomb. And then, however, he's, as Don would say, he's deconstructing the thing so that his crucifixion occurs after the resurrection, uh, which is pretty much what happens in the Last Temptation of Christ, too. Interestingly, but I think it's it's just uh, it's got a lot of. Uh, uh, Jesus an- analogies in
2: there. Our Mother Mary figure uh, Lavinia, we learn a little bit about her in the second chapter. We learn that she likes to wander around in thunderstorms. She read the old book, The Watleys Kept. And now, the old Watley, the dad, he was some kind of black magician of repute around Dunwich. Yeah. And um, and we know that her mother had died by some sort of violence when, when Lavinia was 12. Mm-hmm. That's all anybody knows. And, you know, they live like hoarders out there. They have It's a big mess where they live and And Lavinia has crazy ideas, and she's a little deformed. Now, nobody presided over the birth. In fact, people only found out a week later that she'd even had this child when old Watley came down talking somewhat incoherently at the general store, which is a setting of a lot of fun conversations in the store.
1: I don't care what folks think. If Lavinia's boy looked like his pa, he wouldn't look like nothing you expect. You needn't think the only folks is the folks hereabouts. Lavinia's read some and has seen some things the most you only tell about I calculate her man is as good a husband as you can find this side of Aylesbury. And if ye knowed as much about the hills as I do, you wouldn't ask no better church wedding a hern. Let me tell you something. Someday you folks will hear a
3: child of Lavinia's a-callin' its father's name on the top of Sentinel Hill. You remember what uh, Sam Jaffe says as Wizard Whateley in the movie? And then you'll know... Uh, that, that's a great addition. That's chilling. <laughs> now,
2: is that the uh, 1970 film? Yeah. I haven't seen that. Have you seen that, Chris? I
0: have not. Seen. It's hard to get a copy
2: of it, actually.
0: I've been looking around for one, and it wasn't on Netflix when we were living when I was living in the States, and it's even harder to find over here.
3: Dean Stockwell's in it. And oh, he's great, yeah.
2: He's also in the one they just did on the Sci-Fi Channel.
3: Is this the one with uh, Jeffrey Combs as Wilbur?
2: That's right. Yeah, I didn't see that one either. But I think it's funny
3: that Dean Stockwell's been in the Dunwich Horror twice. <laughs> God, he was in the the new one. I, I saw that at the Lovecraft Flick Fest in, Por- in Portland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was uh, they had good people in it, but what a waste! Uh, yeah. I prefer the Dean Stockwell uh, version.
2: <laughs> I love the general store sw- setting. I just imagine there's a couple of old guys out there playing checkers, eating you know pickles. <laughs> Watley runs up and says this, and they're like, what? Okay. But uh, it is an efficient quote, what uh, what old Waitley says here. He tells us that the paw is something weird-looking. It's not one of the folks from Dunwich, and that someday, as Bob had said earlier, a child of Levitis is going to call the father's name on the hilltop. And, you know, I guess we're all going to find out who Dad is when that
3: happens. Oh, may I just say, add one thing about the general store scene? Sure Sure thing. I, I- I would swear that is consciously based on the madman scene in Nietzsche's The Gay Science. Uh, wh- I did a, a uh, Cthulhu prayer breakfast sermon on this some years ago, uh, mm-hmm. where uh, the madman bursts into town, he's the object of ridicule, he says, I seek God, I seek God, and people start uh, ridiculing him. He, ha- he has a lit lamp. It's it's daytime. He smashes the lamp, and he says, God is dead, and we have killed him. What can we do? We, we must become gods to become worthy of this. And uh, every everybody's blank-faced, and he says, I see I've come too early. From a distant star, light even takes a long time to arrive. And it's, it's the real, premier statement of Nietzsche's death of God view, and of course, Lovecraft's largely right. Ichi, and I'm sure that is the origin of that scene
2: ah. very cool well after that you know nobody sees the baby for that first month except some townies who are curious
0: well and another another thing chad is if, mm-hmm. when he comes in he starts ordering cattle
2: right right and Zechariah who's a, a relative of theirs he brings some cows over that old watley bought and that's the reason that we find out about the cows now what is the deal with the cows
0: well the cow- well he just keeps ordering more cows and then he has some cows that are around you know more cows than what should be around but they're sort of sickly and they have got these little Sores can kind of cuts on them, and yeah. they're the same sores and cuts that have been seen on Wizard Watley and on on Lavinia. Like there's these yeah. little open, weird cut sores that have been showing up on them since the birth of of Wilbur.
3: Though so, it's implied that it's the the unknown twin that is the vampire sucking the life out of the cows and the yeah. People? Well, yeah, pretty yeah.
2: soon, Lavinia's out rambling around with her baby, but the baby is growing up really fast. This Wilbur, he starts walking at like seven months, which is right. crazy. I mean, when does a baby typically walk? At least about a year. Well, that's because they're not
3: feeding them beef early <laughs> enough. Uh, it's a, strange thing. <laughs> uh,
2: a little after he does start walking, Silas Bishop, who's another uh, guy in the town who's not inbred and crazy, he sees Wilbur and his mother running up Sentinel Hill. He thinks naked around Halloween. Well, Wilbur's got some kind of belt and shortly after he sees a fire burning around the stones at the top
3: that's right out of the great god pan too yeah the girls out playing in the woods you mean that yeah and the 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 guy rounding up the sheep or the cattle or something notices what's going on there it's right out of macken
2: and it's remarkable that wilbur is at this point in any state of undress because as he grows older he always wears long sleeves all buttoned up and you know he gets really angry if any of his clothing is out of order he's sort of like He dresses like david lynch i think (laughs) right isn't he always buttoned up Uh, yeah he always has the top button button yeah yeah. (laughs) so that's a weird thing about him i don't know why he does that and
0: he starts speaking like an adult he doesn't have a lisp like a little kid would have he's got a good vocabulary and it's he's just
2: generally creepy and he looks like a goat he's goatish yeah he's got a goatish uh yeah you're right at 11 months he's talking and and when when he does talk it's There's something unearthly about it. It's almost like he's producing
3: sound with different organs than other people do. That's very much like uh, the guy, I can't think of his name, the lead singer in Creedence Clearwater Revival.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly like that. Oh, man. Uh, It does say already here, um, all conjectures about Wilbur were spiced with references to the bygone magic of old Waitley and how the hills once shook when he shrieked the dreadful name of Yog sothoth in the midst of a circle of stones with a great book open and his arms before him. So, reference already to this entity, Yog sothoth which yeah. we saw before in Charles Dexter Ward. It was part of the spell for raising, calling up and calling yeah. down the dead, but what is yog-soth i still don't really i'm not real clear on what it is or if we know that uh,
3: an interdimensional uh, well like the sort of like the psychopomp thing in a sense only he he's the the key and the guardian of the gate he is the gate it's like he's sort of a, a interdimensional portal and yet a being whose likeness uh, earthlings can bear he's it doesn't say he's one of the old ones uh, the the old ones appear to be a more of a concrete race of of things that look like the um, the twin once you can see him briefly uh, that uh, that's one point the 1970 Dunwich Horror movie makes they had no budget and so when you see the old ones it's just a bunch of body painted hippies and it looks stupid but it does suggest <laughs> from from somebody's fresh reading of the story yeah they're just talking about aliens from another dimension uh, not transcendent gods as we sometimes say in the wake of Dirk Mosig. and uh, so there but Yog Sothoth uh, appears to be some sort of function of the the design of the cosmos uh, mike cisco doped out the meaning of the name as meaning something like son of the strangler which was a uh, an epithet of the devil we don't know if lovecraft knew enough arabic or had read this anywhere but it's possible that that's what it means oh wow son of the strangler
0: it's often depicted as um being made up of a lot of spheres you know like being uh Kind of like a bunch of different spheres. but Lovecraft actually gives another description of it in one of his letters he says Yong doesn't always have long ropey arms since he assumes a variety of shapes solid, liquid, gaseous, at will possibly though, his fondest of the form which does have them
2: he's fondest of having the arms
0: the ropey arms and the, the you know the
2: <laughs> like he knows him Uh yeah. it's it's also noted here at the in the second chapter that dogs hate Wilbur Whatley they just hate yeah. Him. And he has to be very careful when he's around dogs. So we have the setting, we have the character, and that brings us into Chapter 3, which really begins the plot. This is where story begins. Um, We learn that Old Whiteley had uh, immediately begun fixing up the house, when Wilbur was born and he also fixes up a tool shed outside and puts a lock on it and while he's got the lock on that tool shed the second floor of the house he boards up the windows so that nobody can see in there he makes a room for Wilbur on the ground floor and he fills it with shelves and all the old books that he has he puts up there for Wilbur to read and and study it's going to be his school it's going to be all of his learning Wilbur is continuing to grow up fast by a year and seven months he's a fluent talker he looks like he's four he's running around the fields and hills with his mom and he's studying the books at home so he can already read yeah. When, the, uh, when the restoration of the house is done, the lock barn is, is no longer locked. The door just swings open. But now there's a really strange architectural feature in the house. There's a door on the second floor of the house where there once was a window with a ramp going up to it <laughs> from the hill.
0: And Earl Sawyer, uh, one of the locals, goes over and he actually went inside and it mm-hmm. smells weird. And there's this specific odor that keeps kind of coming up in the story where he, he describes a very specific that uh, smells like thunder.
3: Does that mean ozone, you think? I guess so. Uh,
2: there's also you know, rumblings underground and fires in the hills all, all this time of his youth, which people are attributing to them now. By the time Wilbur is four, he looks like he's ten. And I love this. He's totally packing heat. Like this little kid, because dogs hate him so much, he's got to carry a pistol as he wanders around. It's, it says sometimes he uses it. Yeah, which means this four-year-old kid is walking around shooting dogs. I don't know. It just seems like they should have Earl Sawyer come home and say, "Honey, that four-year-old down the street just shot a dog." We gotta get, <laughs> yeah, we gotta well, stop right. this kid.
0: <laughs> that four-year-old who looks like a
2: ten-year-old. Uh, he's not talking so much anymore, though. He chants to himself a little bit sometimes, but Wilbur's sort of quietly evil. Now, the very few people who come up by, they find Lavinia alone on the ground floor, often at home but they'll hear crazy noises upstairs in in the boarded upstairs. sloshing
0: around, something that's sloshing.
2: But people whisper that maybe they're sacrificing cows up there or something like that because the cows are, you know, they never have them in inventory. They keep ordering them, but they're never around. And, you know, in fact, the Great War breaks out in 1917, and the draft board can't find enough fit Dunwich men because they're all inbred and weird to to make their quota. Reporters from Boston and Arkham come to check it out. Again, I love that it's Boston and Arkham. Like before in the story, they said, it, they sent the students to Harvard and Miskatonic. It's that same thing where they're blending the actual real places with Lovecraft Country. Now,
0: he says the Arkham Advisor, which is a, a, a change-up because last time that he talked about it in The Color Out of Space, it was the Arkham Gazette. From now on, every time he mentions the Larkham newspaper, it's the Arkham Advisor. So there was some kind of Arkham publishing war. And, uh, I guess so.
3: <laughs> Good
0: beat. And that's it for this week's episode, part one of the Dunwich Horror. We realized that the story is actually about... A publishing war. Fascinating stuff. I want to thank Robert M. Price for joining us on the show and also Chad Pfeiffer for being my co-host. Chad, you did a great job. I thought we did a sententious job. All right. I also want to thank Andrew Lehman for his outstanding reading. Always a pleasure having him on the show. Next week, we will be back with part two of The Dunwich War.
1: HPpodcraft.com. <laughs>